Let's do this. Right here. Right now. I'm Steve Lascauzo, and this is The Way. Welcome to our weekly recap and discussion of the Book of Boba Fett. It's our last one. All seven episodes are now available to stream on Disney+. The series started with Chapter 1 all the way back in 2021, four days after Christmas. The Book of Boba Fett, like The Mandalorian before, it gives episodes both chapter names and numbers. Chapter 7 is also known as In the Name of Honor. The descriptions available on the show's Disney Plus page read, Boba Fett and Fennec Shand face an escalating conflict. Last week, I felt like I immediately had to get work on a recap. If I hadn't already committed to doing that this week, I probably would have just gone back to bed Wednesday morning and let my thoughts get more clear. This is only a seven-episode series, and I think the first few episodes really convinced me there was a bigger story coming together than what actually ended up playing out. At times, even deep into the finale, I thought we were heading toward the showing of a creation of a new type of family. We seemed primed to be setting up an anchor point out of which all other shows were going to connect. Now it seems much more likely that The Mandalorian is that show, but I really thought Disney was creating its SWU here. I thought the history we were seeing, the Growing pains Boba Fett was going through, and in a way putting us through, was setting up a hub, the spokes of which which would branch out from Tatooine to the Mandalorian, Ahsoka, even Andor. Instead, we just got another fun show, and that's totally fine. Let's talk some Fett. Think it through. The director credited for Episode 7 is showrunner Robert Rodriguez. Writing credit goes to John Favreau. Once again, he's being credited solely. The show page says the episode runs 61 minutes. But I like to tell you how much time you need if you're skipping the previously on segments and the Star Wars interstitial before the action starts. So that, you know, if you don't have time to stick around for all the concept art or credits, you know how much time you need. For that, you only need a little more than 53 minutes... I think 53 minutes, 8 seconds or so, and then less than 30 seconds for the post-concept art mid-credit scene. The concept art and credits have at times this season revealed great secrets. Sometimes, however, an acting performance or character name is just conspicuously left out of the credits. I really didn't find anything out of the ordinary except for the first concept art slate, where the King Kong Rancor appeared to be holding a Twi'lek Fey Ray which, since it was green, may have been intended to be the major domo, or maybe just the direction to the artist was, I want the Rancor to look like King Kong, and they just included the captive on their own. I also want to take a moment here in appreciation of John Williams. He turned 90 on Monday, February 7th. Now, Ludwig Gorenson did a fine job here, as he did with The Mandalorian, but we've been living with the themes Williams created for years, so everything else is Sorry, it's second best. Even as wonderful as it has been hearing Gorenson's creations and then the blending done by Joseph Shirley to incorporate them into this work. <laughs> Let me tell you, 
The mind game that Gorenson played with the not so subtle but enough to make me think I'm crazy change to the theme song over the concept art was the first thing that I could actually find the words to talk about after seeing the episode for the first time. I found that quite amusing. Yeah? Good. About those credits. Temuera Morrison is Boba Fett. Ming-Na Wen is Fennec Shand. Pedro Pascal is the Mandalorian, Din Djarin, or at least his voice, right? Sophie Thatcher is Drash, and Jordan Bulger is Scad. Corey Burton voiced Cad Bane, and Dorian Kingy was under the hat doing the performance work. Amy Sedaris is Pelimano. David Peschisi is the major domo to the former mayor of Mos Espa. Carrie Jones was Chrysanthemum. Matt Berry voiced 8D8. Showrunner and director Robert Rodriguez voiced both Doc Strassi and Mayor McCheese, or Mayor McCheese as I like to call him. Phil Lamar likewise voices a couple characters, the Clatoonian boss and the Moss Isley Pike boss. Rest in peace, Gamorian guards. They were played by Frank Trigg and Colin Himes. Garfala Quox was played again by Barry Lowen. The Weequay bartender or proprietor is called Tanti by Joe in the episode. So W. Earl Brown finally gets a proper Wikipedia entry, and I saw his story on Twitter. It's fans like that that make me truly happy, let me tell you. Here's a guy who loves and appreciates Star Wars, and he got to live it, and on Tatooine next to Boba Fett, no less. I'm a fan of those kinds of people. Joe from Mos Belgo, gets a little more work this week for Charisma Chanel. Stunt coordinator for the series has been J.J. Dashnaol, Deputy Itchy Trigger Finger Scott. He's also credited with doing the stunt work for Boba Fett in Chapter 7. His wife Joy credited as doing stunts for Drash this episode alongside Crystal Hooks. Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder don't get enough credit for doing their work inside the suit of the Mandalorian. They continue to handle a lot of that suit work for The Mandalorian. This week it was Mammy Speed Ito doing stunts for Fennec Shand. Mandy Kowalski handled stunts for One Less Toothed Pelimato. Liddell Preston is credited with stunts for SCAD. Jamie Alexander once again provided the action for the Moss Isley Pike boss. Andre Sines Hudson did so for the Pike Capo. And Doc Strassi stunt work was done by Stephen O. Young. Performance capture also plays a part in how we see the characters. John Rosengrant did the capture work for Mayor McCheese, Mokshais. Ardashir Radpour, who played Kababayas a couple of episodes back, did the Clatoonian boss capture work. And when we come back from a short break, I'll begin the recap and discussion part of the show, so please stick around. I suppose you'll be heading out. I'm not. Episode 7's first shot is an aerial look at the Moss Espa Town Crater, or the Town Center. I started taking notes for this by trying to nail down exactly where the sanctuary is in relation to Town Hall. I tried to see if it was possible to tell by the blast. You know, maybe there was a fire damage spread on the scene. Maybe I could tell by the stuff hanging in the streets. But even considering Kersantan's walk directionally from the City Hall to the sanctuary later in the episode... Didn't help me. And honestly, for details so small, I wasted a lot of time on that. The establishing shot of the town leads to one of the sanctuary exterior, and then we head inside where Boba Fett and Senek Shand are surveying the damage. Fett says they're at war, and there might not be much left of the town when it's all done. 
When the episode started, I thought maybe we're going to get Garza Fwip crawling out from under a table or something in the sanctuary, but it was quite clear that everyone in the club was a goner. I wonder if we had gotten something like that, and then maybe Max Rebo coming to the door to start his shift, and Madame Garza says, hey, we're closed, and then he'll have to look for a job somewhere else. Maybe just something hopeful out of the beginning, but it certainly set a gloomy tone. I think that was the intention. Then Jaren walks in, I guess fresh off his conversation with Cobb Vanth, although I'll talk about that, that in a moment. He he believes the town is going to ride in and save the day, right? Moss Pelgo. Fett believes him, sort of, and says they should go back and wait in the palace for the pikes. Fett has rebuffed counsel from Shan repeatedly in the series. But the first time Scad and Drash speak up, he not only listens, but he almost immediately agrees to their plan. Now, to be clear... I do think it's a better idea politically not to abandon the town, but I just question whether this weakens Shan. I understand she's a mercenary who hasn't gone through the sea change that Boba Fett has, but you know she also, in a sense, owes him her life. But should she be throwing away her second chance just because he thinks this is the better political move? Again, I happen to think Scott and Drash are right not to abandon the town, only I also don't think from what we've seen that the Pikes would do anything to the townsfolk. Those are their customers. They also wouldn't attack the palace without a superior force. Those Scorpinex wouldn't have matched up against a Boba Fett ship or a Starfighter, right? It would have either bought them time or escalated the conflict. In the end, I don't know that anything is much different except there is one big difference that is a huge unknown benefit to staying in town. The betrayals by the families later might not have happened, which means there still would have been this underlying threat. So staying in town meant the families overplayed their hands, and as a result, they get wiped out. Now, there's no way Drash and Skadden knew that were go- was going to happen. Honestly, It also hinges on the help they get later from two parties they have no knowledge about, but that does end up with a better result for Fett. That was fast. Were you able to hire any foot soldiers? I mentioned how the Mandalorian came in fresh off his meeting, but I think the order of the scenes is a little off. Fett and Shand are there at the sanctuary the morning after the bombing. But then we cut to the night before where Cad Bane goes in to meet his employers, and they just bombed the sanctuary. Din Djarin and Vanth had met during the day before, so there's a night cycle in there, and then there's a morning after the bombing. The timing and the order of the scenes is just a little off. On top of that, Luke's X-Wing lands that same night in the same town as Bane and the Pike's meeting. He's got Grogu inside. Well, Luke doesn't. R2-D2 does. You know, bus driver R2-D2. Now, Cad Bane's meeting shows us what Fett is truly up against. We find out for sure Mayor McCheese was in on things, but not the bombing, he says. He's got two stomachs to go with four throats, it turns out. We find out it was indeed the Pikes and not the Kitten Strider bike gang that slaughtered Fett's tribe. And Bane has an idea on how to draw out Boba Fett since they have a history. We can only assume it's going to be Well, the plan is to prey upon one of Boba Fett's old weaknesses, 
which we can assume is pride and honor from the slate. So the title slate says, in the name of honor, and then we go from the slate to an X-Wing bus driver scene. You know, this isn't chapter 16 of The Mandalorian. I assumed immediately this was Luke's X-Wing, but he's not the pilot. R2 is. He's bringing Grogu back to The Mandalorian. Pelimano's spiel about registering with the New Republic was a nice touch, showing just how little regard people have for the new sheriffs, so to speak. Anyone with an X-Wing is just assumed to be the law. Pelly sees Grogu, climbs the ladder to the pilot seat, and she calls him Bright Eyes. R2 corrects her, but she says there's no way she's calling him Grogu, which is perhaps an acknowledgement of the unusual name. But it's also telling people, you know, you can call him whatever you want, just spend money on his merch. Let me say hello to my old pal. Well, hello, Bright Eyes. How little does Luke care about him, though? I may be reading into this, but I, I don't think so. Luke is being petty. Luke and R2 do not know Pelimato. R2 has no instructions like give him only to Mando, apparently. What happened with I will protect him with my life? Maybe Luke did tell R2 to drop him off on Tatooine. Maybe R2 ignored a specific command not to leave him with anyone but the Mandalorian. But I ask you, does that seem likely? Sure, Pelly seems to know him, and Grogu seems to know her, but that's like my neighbor going to pick up my kids from school. That's not going to happen. At the very least, not coming himself is petty. He's got no other students yet, and no other duties at the moment. Picking a chosen family over a lightsaber is something he, Luke, already did in Empire Strikes Back. Hey, I know it cost him a hand. But maybe his willingness to sacrifice himself also ended up leading to his father being saved. Well, Grogu is better off with Pelly anyway. What do you have here, huh? Something shiny. Well, look at you all fancy. You must be starving. Bring him some dumb worms. Back at the sanctuary, Fennec gives the audience, us, a briefing. There's no other reason to say things out loud like she does, but that happens in movies all the time. And in TV shows, I guess, too. We see the various elements of the plan in voiceover form. The Gamorreans watch the spaceports in Clatoonian territory. Kersantan somehow gets posted in Trandoshan territory, despite the conflict between Wookiees and Trandoshans being well-known in the universe. The mods head back to their old haunt among the Aqualish in the Workers' District, and we do not hear from Stephen Root's watermonger, Lortha Peel. We do not see him again after Episode 3. I thought maybe we might see his little face pop out. Nope. Doesn't factor in the rest of the series after his one episode. 8D8 appears at the door of the Sanctuary, something that surprises Boba Fett, Fennec, and Din. That only underlies the terrible situation they're in, because they're not safe there. Lord Fred, there is someone here to see you. I thought you said nobody could sneak up on us. It's Cad Bane walking in for another showdown. Fett and him have a little back and forth, and we only get the implication that they know each other. Nothing specific is called out. Bane does use an aphorism that we heard Boba use in Chapter 16 of The Mandalorian when he was 
talking to Casca Reeves. If that's not the quack to call in the stifling slimy. He then tells Boba that not only should he not count on reinforcements, but we basically get a search your feelings you know it to be true moment. Fett has flashbacks to finding his tribe massacred when Bane brings up the treachery of the pikes, blaming it on the bikers. Bane's plan is to egg on Fett into making a mistake, and he nearly falls for the bait. I can take him. You're emotional. I can take him. We need to adjust. You'll have your moment. Maybe all that ignoring Shand all series long was to pay off this one moment. He finally listens to Shand. Fennec calms him down, assuring him he'll get his moment. But this isn't it. Yeah, it definitely wasn't it. We find that out for sure later. Fett terminates negotiations, and the Major Domo slithers out from the sanctuary to offer congratulations, but reports come in that refusing Bane has triggered a rebellion. The families that all agreed to stand down in the war betray Fett all at once. The Gamorians are forced off a cliff, although I'm not sure why they let themselves get put in that position, really. The Trandoshans pull knives and head for Kersantan, who thankfully has some tough skin, right? We saw him take that gaffy stick to the back and then to the leg. He kept on ticking back in episode 3. Well, he gets swamped <laughs> with the reptiles in this one. And the mods are set upon by Aqualish. Two of the mods actually do get shot. So there's some consequences here, I guess. I mean, I know the Gamorreans died too, but wow. Back at the Sanctuary, Fett once again listens to Shan. She suggests taking out command and control. The Major Domo gives up they can be found in the Desert Survey Office. That's the building where the Pike Boss is running the spice trade. Shan takes off, but not before stopping by the Workers' District to save the mods. And they're thankful. Hey. Thank you. Manners. I like it. You're welcome. The Pikes start to close in on the street outside the sanctuary. Now that Shand is gone, it's just two Beskar-plated bounty hunters, or former bounty hunters perhaps. I think my favorite part of the scene is where Boba Fett outright asks Din Darren if he really believes in the Creed. I gave you my word. I'm with you until we both fall. You really buy into that bent of thought of? I do. Good. If there was another moment to match it, it has to be moments later when they discuss their two options. Wait inside for help that may never come, or rush out and hope a surprise attack catches them off guard. Boba Fett once again offers to let Din Djarin go, but Mando name drops our podcast. Okay then, we'll both die in the name of honor. You sure you want to stay? This is the way. If I may offer an alternative... The Major Domo interjects. He either ruins this moment or brings some levity to the situation. I guess that depends on your mood. He says he's been trained in civic council negotiations on Coruscant. His offer is to be the intermediary to get them passage off-world and out of harm's way. Fett agrees to write out his terms and sends out the Major Domo. He didn't read what Fett wrote before heading out, though. He says that he holds a tablet bearing the terms of surrender, 
and the Majordomo tries buttering out the pikes with the mention of the obsidian cliffs of Obadiah. But when the pike capo presses him to read out the terms, Fett uses some flowery prose to tell off the attackers. And that gives he and Din Djarin the perfect moment to launch an attack. The arid sands of Tatooine will once again flourish with flowered fields fertilized with the bodies of your dead. His words. The two come flying in on jetpacks and are surprisingly amazing shots when they're flying. Not only that, but they basically take out every pike we could see and more, but the pikes keep on coming. Fett uses his knee rockets, Din Djarin uses his whistling birds. This is a very long survival wave for you video gamers out there, and the only thing keeping them alive is the Beskar. They're getting pinned down, the shots are ringing off the Beskar, and they're constantly on the ground from all the fire. These are not stormtroopers taking shots at them, I guess. When all seems lost, shots start coming from elsewhere. Freetown rides in on a gun skiff. It provides cover and firepower from a turret. What's left of the mods bikes in to join the townsfolk. Then Chrysanthemum comes in from the city center, dragging a pike or two. I guess the Trandoshans are gone. He survived their knives, and now he survives some blaster shots from the pikes. Boba Fett gets him behind cover, promises him a back to soak. We get another moment proving the pointlessness of the mods on the mods. It's not Scad pointing out the incoming artillery. It's the Mandalorian and his helmet. Scorpinex are coming down the street, and I did not know that's what they were called until Palimato points them out later in the episode. In fact, that morning after I watched and started taking notes, I searched for Scorpinex, and the page must have been taken down on Wikipedia for editing, because there was no active page when I went to search. Later, I saw there was an entry created something like two years ago, but it cites Legends materials. I feel like I have to say it over and over again. Legends never was canon. Unless they bring it into live action, it doesn't count. Live action always, always takes precedent. The movies take precedence first. Then the shows, the TV shows, live action shows, the cartoons, or the animated shows, I guess you'd say. It's Legends is not part of it. Not at any point was Legends canon. Not even the day that they were released were they canon. Not even back then. It's not even worth arguing. I don't even know why I do it. They are most definitely canon now in this form. My first thought was these were simply Droidica 2.0. Master, destroy us! These canon Scorpinex, <laughs> see what I did there, are formidable and shielded. The turret can't get through. Boba Fett's jetpack missile can't get through. Flamethrowers don't work. The Dark Saber gets used but doesn't get through the shield. And there is a line from Din Djarin about why. Our energy weapons can't get through and our kinetic weapons have too much velocity. Fett asks Din Djarin to fend them off, the Scorpinex, until he can get reinforcements. We, the audience, know what the Mandalorian does not. Fett is going to go get the Rancor. 
He jets off. Amanda runs off to draw one of the Scorpnecks away. The other one's still attacking the group that's left. Kersantan's heavy blaster can't get through. He tries slowly pushing through with his knuckle dusters, and he does have some success, but the Scorpnek knows he's there. It uses its leg to swat him into a wall. Drash and Scad help him to his feet, and then Scad does this completely unnecessary spin move. Now, it's in character for the mods as they are, but everyone I've talked to this past week thinks the mods are terrible. And there's a sizable amount of people who I watch on, you know, or listen to on Twitter and on YouTube. They also think they're out of place. I went to a card game Friday night, and me and the guys talked about the shows we were watching. Boba Fett came up universally. Everyone who saw the show did not like the design of the mods. Not that they were mods, but no one liked the design. It wasn't that a group like that existed. It's that it existed as it does on Tatooine. I know Din Djarin does it earlier in the episode, but it looks much cooler when he does it. And if you need to know the difference between a guy in a long coat and a guy in full Mandalorian armor doing spin moves, then we're not even having the same conversation. I feel like I have to backtrack. If you like it, that's fine. But other people, you have to understand that other people don't like it. So Mando was running through the streets of Moss we just heard. Pelimato somehow comes across him and calls out to him from the droid rickshaw. It's the same kind we saw earlier in the series. I think there were Aqualish or, or no, Biths were on them. It's also the kind that Padme and Anakin rode in Attack of the Clones. Apparently, she doesn't put together that she's having to yell over gunfire and explosions, that they're in a dangerous situation. She's all happy to see him. So Mando hitches a ride on the back, and they try to stay ahead of the Scorpionek. Meanwhile, the mods in Mos Pelgo Townsfolk retreat to the OK Corral and they get pinned down. That's kind of what it looked like to me. Drash says she grew up close by and she knows if they keep retreating, they're going to be left with no cover and cornered. So she suggests she finds a way to a high spot to snipe down. Now, we heard Joe's name come from Vanth, but we never heard anything but W. Earl Brown's bartender character called Weequay which is a type of alien, not a name. Joe calls the Weequay bartender Tanti and asks for his cycler rifle. So Tanti is the name of the bartender. We finally get that name. And he gives up his rifle for Drash's little Derringer. Good luck. Let's go. Cover us. The scene cuts to the rickshaw, and Grogu reveals himself to a surprised Din Djarin. And then when he leaps into Daddy Din's arms... I'm supposed to get all goosey and blubbery. Well, forget it, pal. You get the wrong guy. That's exactly what Adilidon said. But when he saw his mother, Niagara Falls... Din sees him wearing the little shirt, and he doesn't know the choice that was made to get him there. He's just so happy to see his little buddy. Pelly calls out to cut the cute moment, but they're being chased by a scorpionek, right? So <laughs> Grogu's there because... The Force works in mysterious ways, she says. In our world, people say the Lord works that way, and though he does, it's just another parallel drawn between real-world religion 
and the Force. Peli and Grogu and Mando and the pit droids all go flying. No sign of the BD unit and of course no R5 or Treadwell. Mando, though, makes an NFL championship-worthy catch, grabbing Grogu in the air and rolling over and keeping him safe on the fall. But Peli, she loses a tooth. It looks like they might be done for when a monster appears. The Rancor, barely visible over the rooftops, looks almost like shots that we see of Godzilla going through a town. It claws itself up over a building, and on top is Boba Fett. He's riding his, I don't know, what do you call it, a pet? It clashes with the Scorponek, and though it can't bash through the force field, it certainly does apply immense force. Din Djarin sees an opening and approaches from behind. The Darkstaber still can't breach the shield, but the droid shifts most of its power to the threat up front, the Rancor. And that lets Din Djarin walk in through the shield, and he jets up on top. The Scorponek then fires at the chest of the Rancor, and we see it's got a thick hide because it's hurt, but not badly. Jaren cuts off one of the guns, and I still don't know why plunging the Darksaber right into the area above the Hal Red Eye doesn't destroy the thing. But he's tossed forward, and it even brings down a pincer leg onto him. It would have severed his leg right there if it hadn't bounced off the Beskar. So we know that the legs aren't built of it, right? They're not made of Beskar because we heard from the armor that Beskar can pierce Beskar. So it doesn't look like we ever got a payoff of that. Look, I'm glad there isn't because I don't want a pirate Mando with one leg. But still, that amount of force coming down on an armored thigh would still probably break bones. Grogu steps out and I thought we were going to see him force crush the thing or something like that. Maybe just levitate it but he pulls a joint pin out of a leg, and the Scorponek falters. Boba Fett has the Rancor leap in, and his command to tear it apart is an echo of something Palpatine told Anakin early in The Revenge of the Sith. Kill him. Kill him now. I shouldn't. Do it. Do it. Back at the OK Corral, once again, we're shown how wasted the mods, actual mods, are when Scad zooms in on Drash. Completely unnecessary. It only underlines how dumb the mods are. We've seen several chances that they could have shown us that the mods that they do to themselves have some special use. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is the point. But he can see her with his naked eye. He doesn't need to zoom in four times. It's not even like... 20 times zoom. Maybe the designers were trying to show us how dumb mod culture is, both in the Star Wars universe and in the real world. Well, if that's the case, then mission accomplished. You're allowed to like them. I think they're dumb. I'm not calling you dumb for liking them. There's a difference. If you're calling other people names because you think you've got some aha, gotcha moment, you don't. You don't have a gotcha moment. Your argument is just as bad as the others, or just as good as the others. Just don't call other people names. That you understand, huh? Joe and Drash do snipe down to give the girls a triumph, but it's Boba Fett and the Rancor onto the second Scorponek that's the main course. 
The townsfolk and mods are in awe of the monster versus droid battle. I don't have a problem with everyone sitting it out. There's not much that they've been able to do so far, and firing might only hit the Rancor or Boba Fett by mistake. The Rancor rips off a gun, even uses it to shield a blast, and then it puts a thumbnail through the Halide, tears off the other gun, and impales the control center with it. That brings a cheer from everyone watching, and Mando shouts to direct the group to chase down the fleeing pikes. There's no quarter here. We see the Major Domo in hiding, and Palimano protects him, a nice nod to the previous work that Amy Sedaris and David Peschisi have done together in the real world on, you know, different projects. Now they're united as actors in the Star Wars universe. Nice head tails. Come on, get behind me, pretty face. There are a few awesome scenes of the prowess of the Rancor against the pitiful Pike stragglers. They get shot, tossed, smashed to bits, and yes, even eaten. We've got a problem, though. The townsfolk and mods run toward Boba Fett and the Rancor to chase the pikes. If you go back and look, you see they're running towards the Rancor. I know that they seem to make a right and go down a side street, but Cad Bane shows up soon after, and no one is nearby. You know, there's tumbleweeds blowing by, basically. No one's around at all, except for him, Cad Bane, and Boba Fett. Bane uses his flamethrower to disorient the beast, and that throws Boba Fett. And it climbs off, rather than try to crush Bane. Bane and Fett have a classic showdown here. It's clearly worse for Boba Fett. He's tired. He just rode, he's been fighting. He just rode a Rancor around, he just got knocked off. And he's also old, tired, and rusty. Now, Bane is an old man, too, now. I've known you a long time, Bobo. One thing I can't figure. What's your angle? These are my people. I will not abandon them. Like the Tuscans. Don't toy with me. I'm not a little boy any longer. And you are an old man. But Bane knocks him to his feet with some gunfire and then taunts him. Now's about the time you jet off to your back to take. He says he's got his father's blood pumping through his veins and he says he's always been a killer. Maybe insinuating that he's soon going to share his fate. But unfortunately for Bane, he took off Boba Fett's helmet. Fett is left helpless again. This time in his armor. But without his helmet, we see him retreat into his mind a little bit just before Bane can deliver his final lesson. Look out for yourself. Anything else is weakness. So instead, it's Bane who gets schooled. Fett dodges the shot enough for it to go off his Beskar breastplate. He pulls the gaffy stick from his back, using it to knock the blaster from Bane's hand gets to his feet, knocks Bane back, and then pulls his leg out from under him with the curved part of the stick. Then he knocks a second pistol out of Bane's hands and then glowers over him with a rage that we saw him meet out on Stormtroopers on Titan. He's got that same look in his eye. Now it's Bane's turn to make a final play. I knew you were a killer. He tries to use his flamethrower, but Fett blocks the attack and then plunges the sharp end of the gaffy stick right into Bane's chest. He wheezes, gasps, 
goes limp. He's dead. Yes, I know, folks. His chest respirator is blinking, but I think that's just to keep a door open in case they want to bring him back. It's much more likely that he's a goner. He looked like he was wearing a military jacket of some kind. I don't know what the backstory behind that is. I have no idea if other Duros needed life support systems, that's the type of alien he is, or what the light blinking really means, but the mood and the tone of the scene tells me Fett won this duel. You see, the problem with bringing a Rancor to a Scorponek fight is you can shut down the droids with a command switch, but Rancors, well, Danny Trejo told us they're complex creatures. Everyone is shooting at the riderless Rancor, and Mando says it's scaring it. The Rancor, who I don't think has a name, climbs a tower in Ossespa, and before he looked like Godzilla, now he evokes King Kong. I got no problem with this imagery. It looks cool. Din Djarin tries flying up and riding the Rancor, but he's not imprinted on it, remember. It rejects the rider. It smashes him through a building. And then tries biting off his head. I'm surprised the teeth didn't pull off the helmet, but it tries twice to bite down on his Beskar helmet. And then it throws him through a wall on the ground, and that knocks him out. Then it gives a roar to Peli, the Major Domo, and Grogu, who are cowering nearby. Or maybe just Peli and the Major Domo, because Grogu doesn't seem afraid. He just walks right out. The Rancor seems curious. What is this walking snack? It must be thinking. Grogu extends his hand, and the first thing I thought was the animal connection that Ezra Bridger seemed to have in the Force. Maybe this was a nod to that, or maybe it's just another force power that Grogu knows instinctually. Think of all that Luke could have learned from Grogu, not just teach him. The Rancor calms slowly until it falls asleep right there in the street. And that took a lot out of Grogu. Remember, he likes to fall asleep after exerting some of the force. He cuddles right up next to the Rancor, and what a fantastic image that would be on concept art. I can't believe we didn't see, or maybe we did and I just missed it, of Grogu just curled up right next to the Rancor. Over in Mos Eisley, we're wondering if Fennec Shand ever arrived. The heads of the families are there with the Pike boss and the mayor is demanding answers. The Pikes plan to cut their losses. That might be a problem for them if everyone stuck around, but no one's going to get the chance. Like an unseen monster in a thriller movie. Shan blasts the two guards outside, but we only hear it. We don't see it. The people inside get on alert, but shots ring out from seemingly impossible angles and takes out everyone but the mayor and the pike boss. A noose or rope comes down from the ceiling, hangs Mokshai's, his bones cracking in the closed captioning, it says. All that's left is the pike boss, shooting at nothing, staring at the doorway. Suddenly he gasps and collapses. Fennec is standing there with a blade, bloodied green from the pike boss. No one's left. She leaves. Back in Mas Espa, the town is happy to be rebuilding. Gone is the threat of the crime lords. Lord Boba and Master Fennec walk the street. 
They're presented with a Melu Run Melon, one of Harris Sundula's favorites. It's the same kind that the Major Domo ran into with his speeder when he was getting chased by the mods and they fell on him, kind of like a scene out of, you know, Back to the Future. Fett's arm is hurt, though, from all the genuflecting that has to be done back and forth. Fennec mentions he should soak in the back to tank. Yeah, I mean, that's a cure for everything that ails you, right? Boba says it's being used. The implication at first I thought was, hey, it's Chrysanthemum. Remember, he promised him. But then Chrysanthemum shows up. Boba tosses him a melon and the mods walk up. And it is, in my opinion, the worst ending for a TV show I've seen. It's almost like an SNL skit where they don't know how to end it. There's Boba, Fennec, Chrysanthemum, the mods, and a rat catcher droid from the palace, or one like it. The mods complain they don't get a melon and ask Chrysanthemum to share, and mercifully, <laughs> we we pan up instead of freeze frame. I expected it to be like a freeze frame with them all throwing their heads back in laughter, like, ha, 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 ha. But we don't get that. Chrysanthemum, you want to share? <laughs> <laughs> the pan up to the twin suns dissolves into space. Din is piloting the modified N1 starship, and Grogu is in the bubble. I repeat... Grogu is in the bubble. Every podcast and podcasts, everyone I watched or listened to did the same as us. And they speculated that when Pelimato put it in that bubble, it was for Grogu. And we don't just get to see it. We get to see it in the same series. We don't have to wait for the Mandalorian season three proper. Grogu is tapping on the window with his little flight stick knob that he loved playing with from the Razor Crest. He wants something. Din doesn't want to comply. Finally, he does. Grogu wants to go fast. Daddy Din switches on the sublight thrusters and they head off into the stars. And they'll be back in Season 3. At the end of Season 2, we got that mid-credit scene telling us about the Book of Boba Fett. Well, we do get a mid-credit scene, but nothing is for sure. It's not a post-credit scene telling us when Obi-Wan will debut or when season three comes out. It's the palace and it's the back to tank, but it's Cobb Vanth. He's alive, or at least just barely. Apparently a shot to the shoulder is a grave wound. The mod surgeon is there, and I think that's a terrible mistake to have him there and commit to modding Vanth. You could just bring him back later and show him being modded if you want to commit to that. You don't even know what story you're going to tell. There's no slate that says we'll be back soon or Cobb Vanth will return. It's just the end of the series. All right, but this is the last time. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I think I've already talked at length about my issues with this series, but... Allow me for a moment to talk about something different. We didn't get a backstory for Boba Fett. We got an interlude that shows us how Boba Fett survived the Sarlacc Pit. For years as a child, we'd have Boba Fett fall into a hole that we dug in the sand, me and my brother. Maybe we even put an antlion that we dug up placed at the bottom of the base of the pit. Fett would always get out. We are truly blessed to be Star Wars fans with such awesome action in front of us on a regular basis. I know it always doesn't play out how we had it as kids. It'll take an entire show 
of mods to get me to even flinch. And if it gets me more Luke Skywalker dressed in black doing lightsaber forms in front of a baby Yoda, okay. Yes, I have valid criticisms. I'm a pretty good critic when it comes to Star Wars. I love it, and I appreciate it, and I know what fits and what doesn't fit. That doesn't mean I don't enjoy the show. I do. I think things could have tied together better. But we don't know what's going on behind the scenes that they've got planned. I'm always going to like the version of Star Wars I have in my head the best. You, the listener of the podcast, probably have great ideas that you'd prefer. These are the ones that Dave, John, and Robert brought us. And I'm more than okay with that. It's a great time to be a Star Wars fan. And there's more Star Wars coming this year. I hope you'll stick around with us to watch it all and discuss. Hello there. Come here, my little friend. Don't be afraid. For the last time this season, I'd like to thank Cufflinks.com. They're not a sponsor of this podcast episode, but they did stick with us, not just through December's Christmas rush. The company chose us, and we chose them right back. Now, our discount code is no longer active, but I hope you'll still check them out and consider them for Father's Day and Mother's Day gifts. And hey, if you reach out to them, let them know you want them to continue to support us. Maybe we can get you a code to shop in May and June. Obi-Wan is coming up, right? Thank you again, Cufflinks.com. I'm very grateful for the support. Their reputation is legendary. That's all from the Book of Boba Fett. There's no word at this point about a season two. It might not be necessary. That might be it for the series. It seems clear that all the characters from all the shows can show up at any point in time. Some of the criticism about this show was that it was more like Mandalorian 2.5. But that's kind of what was promised to us about a year ago. The next person who gets to tell stories is Deborah Chow. She is the showrunner of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and she directed a couple of episodes of The Mandalorian for Favreau to earn herself that. The series is only six episodes long, and it appears that it's going to debut May 25th. That's one of the benefits of waiting so long to put out the main podcast. We get a solid date. Someone who works in promotion seems to have mistakenly tweeted about it. Several entertainment news outlets confirmed that that was a mistake that the, the person in promotions tweeted out. Now, after Obi-Wan, we've got the Bad Batch second season and Andor series, and then maybe either Ahsoka or The Mandalorian season three later this year or in 2023. We may get an Obi-Wan trailer to talk about sometime soon, but I predict it comes out next week. Next Friday will be three months out from the show, and that seems like an ideal time to do it. What do you think? You can always email us, send us feedback, comments, email us to thisisthewaypodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at thisisthewaypod or on facebook.com at slash thisisthewaypod. I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is the way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.